this isn't about a model and doing it or not doing it. It's fuzzy and it's messy and that's what makes it hard, but that is also what can make it work. Deep. Hi. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Tiffany. Good to see you. <laughs> you as well. I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing catch-up today because I am so excited about the episode that we are bringing to our listeners today and putting out into our Navigating Parenthood podcast scene. This one was really exciting for me. And before I introduce Kate and all her credentials, first of all, I just want to hear from you. You and I both read the book by Kate Mangino called Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home. Deep. Everybody knows what I think because I haven't shut up about it since I opened the first page of the book. I know. <laughs> you kept going on and on. <laughs> and <laughs> not just with me, but with so many other people. I want to yeah. hear. I want to hear. What did you think? What were your thoughts? And also after meeting yeah. Kate and having a little bit of a deeper discussion about all these things, what mm. came up for you? I think this book gave me a framework to look at how. Jacqueline and I manage our relationship at home, especially with the kid in context, in kid in the mm -hmm. equation. And I think simply put, I mean, there's so many gems in the book. I haven't read it 100% throughout yet. It's a big book. It's a massive book. <laughs> so for those of you getting started being realistic, it'll take a while, but every part of it is worth it so far. It didn't take me a while. I will say I burnt through it. So yeah. I will probably read it again because I read it on like turbo mode. And so I okay. think that giving it a second go for me would even be worth it. So yeah, there's a lot in there. There's a I'm surprised you say that. I thought you would have just kind of really melted because you had so many note tags hanging from the book. And okay, I did. I also was like journaling inside of it. <laughs> you probably had a PhD in this book. Maybe I wonder why did we even have Kate for the interview? You could have just presented the content <laughs> yourself. But no, in all honesty, I think the simplest thing that it did for me is a little shift and it brought about empathy for my partner on mm. many areas on how she's been managing, not just the relationship or not just the relationship with Janos, our kid, but also us together. And mm. it brought about more empathy for you know, her role and how can mm -hmm. I be more present and mm -hmm. It also shown some light on when there is anguish in the relationship, just to understand why that anguish is happening, why there's frustration, and just be able to understand that better and just to be present to that from a position of as an equal partner. Yeah, I loved it. And one more thing, from the parts that it yeah. talked about, because this is not, I think one of the important things and one of the most important things for me about this book, the reason I see that it could help a lot of people and have a huge impact is because it's not yeah. just talking about women. It's also talking about how gender inequality affects men and how it mm. hurts them and where they lose out. Mm. Was mm. there any part of that as a dad 
and a man that you saw and you were like, yeah. It's very natural. Now I say natural. It, it wasn't obvious in the beginning that if it's about equal partners, it has to tackle the topic from both sides. It has to speak to both men and women in that heterogeneous relationship from that perspective. So as a man, I think the part that really I connected with is how much removed I am from my true emotional self mm. and how much I am not allowed to express my emotions in the ways that I would love to. And that builds up frustration and anger and shows up the dominant side just because there is no outlet, there's no vent for that emotion. And hmm. so that part was the one that I really connected with. How about you? What is the one that if you could pick out one thing that just spoke to Tiffany? <laughs> I'm just laughing. I'm just laughing hmm. so hard right now because, and I think you know why. I don't know how I could pick one. I think there's a few things. I couldn't possibly name just one. For me, she gave me the words to name the things that I have felt and experienced for a very long time. Is there an opposite of gaslighting? Because I feel like <laughs> she did the opposite of that and was like, no, all this is true. This is what's happening yeah. and this is how it affects. And I think one of the biggest things for me and why I have set out so hard on this journey and why this is so important to me is because I'm raising a little girl and I want her yeah to live in a world one day where there is equality. I do not want her to face the challenges and struggles mm. that I face. Mm. And mm. so this is not just a tiny problem for me. This is a huge societal problem. Mm. And I need it fixed mm. now. Interesting you say that because no matter how much I made it about myself, I read this book also for Janos to show up as a better person in a relationship. But yeah, yeah. sorry to cut you there, but it's, no. it is one of the things as well. Yeah. And when I saw that she was starting out by saying, this affects all of us. This is not only for the betterment of women. This is for the betterment of society. I was like, yes, absolutely. And then she was able to so clearly point out all these different phenomena that, that we're experiencing as humans and how it's affecting us as humans and how we get to be less human because of it. And then you feel this giant societal, huge problem. And you're like, oh my God, what do we do? Even if you've known this is a problem for so long, yeah. what are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Kate gives very tangible, bite-sized pieces of advice or things that you can do to quote unquote, move the needle, right? It yeah. is not, here's this big giant problem and at the end, I feel like so many times we have to switch all the way. We have to do all these things differently. Or it's like, do anything. She makes it digestible. Yeah. That's what I love the most is that no matter who you are and you don't have to have kids, it's about equal partnership. The things that you can do in your circle of influence in everyday life to have an impact and move us closer in that direction. And I think if there was a way to put the bow on and tie it up for me. That was it. Yeah. Fantastic. Why don't you introduce Kate? And we can't yeah. wait for our listeners to have a listen to this. So without further ado, Kate Mangino is a gender expert who works to change harmful societal norms through writing, training, and facilitation. She's got more than 20 years of experience working in international development 
writing, and delivering curricula in more than 20 countries over a range of issues, gender equality, women's empowerment, healthy masculinity, women's economic participation, HIV prevention, and early enforced childhood marriage. So she wanted to write this book to bridge her international work with her personal life and address gender inequality in the United States. I am so very excited to debut this podcast recording and interview with the author of Equal Partners, Kate Mangino. Kate, hi. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for coming. I've said it a hundred times and people back me up. I just cannot get enough of this book. I cannot. (laughs) And from the moment I started reading it, I even ordered it on pre-order. But a wait. I was like waiting for this book and I had no idea what it would be about, the things it would say, or that I would at some point be sitting here with you recording this podcast to share this amazing book, just chock full of useful tidbits that we can actually apply to our life. I I didn't know that you would be sitting here recording this podcast with us. So the pleasure is all mine. All ours. (laughs) (laughs) That's dedication. And as an author, you don't realize how important pre-orders are until you write a book. So thank you for taking Mm. the time to pre-order. And then shoving it off on all of my friends. (laughs) Shoving it (laughs) off on all your friends. If that was, I think the only way for me to get Tiffany to stop was to have you on this show. Otherwise, <laughs> we would have this constant evangelizing to all the friends. But so thanks for coming to the show, Kate. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into the book, do you want to tell a little bit about like, how was it born? It was born over time. There were a couple moments that I can remember where things clicked together. The first piece of the puzzle was when I was working on my dissertation and I was doing research in Indonesia and talking to men's groups. And one of the men said, what do American men think? What Are they doing this? Are they looking at their own masculinity? Are they asking themselves these hard questions or is this just us? And I didn't know the answer to that question because all my work had always been overseas. And so that was one of the first puzzle pieces. I was like, you get a corner of the puzzle and you're like, okay, maybe this would be a good research project to figure out how American men are thinking and feeling right now. And my dissertation was on the intersection of women's empowerment and masculinity. So it was very much in line with what we're talking about today. Mm. And I had a moment of like breakdown towards... When I was writing my dissertation, I was taking my kids were two and five and Mm. I was the parent that got called when everyone was sick and needed to come home from daycare early. And I was teaching three undergraduate classes and I was just absolutely scheduled to 110% every day. And if there's one misstep, it all falls down, right? We've all been there. And that's where I was, the house of cards. That's where I was Mm -hmm. in that moment. And then something else landed on me. My dissertation advisor wanted me to turn something in a month early and I lost it because it just couldn't, my card deck, my cards fell down. The house just collapsed and I just sat Mm. on the kitchen floor for hours and just sobbed because that was the only reaction that my body could handle at that moment. And my husband kept saying, Mm. I want to help. Please tell me what I can do to help. And I just was so mad at him. I was like, 
I don't want you to help me. You're not my helper. You're my partner. And making a to-do list for you is just as much work as doing it myself. Like my dissertation just came out in anger. (laughs) And I just was quoting all these statistics and how trying to describe my frustration. And I said, the average household nowadays, you have dual working couple, like in in a household with a partnership, both people work. That's more Mm. common than a stay at home parent. But in those dual working households, one person does the lion's share of the work at home and one person doesn't. And I said, we're falling into that just like everyone else. I'm a gender expert and it's happening to us. And I said, and it's hurting both of us. I'm already starting to give up professional dreams. And my kids are only two and five. And you're already pulling away from the kids emotionally. And they're only two and five. Mm -hmm. And this is a really bad thing for both of us. And we have to do Mm -hmm. something super intentional to stop it. And He listened. I'm just, I'm glad he listened. And we stayed up all night talking and we still talk that it's not one conversation. We're still having the conversation. It's a lifetime of conversations, but that started it. And so a year later, after I realized how different my life was because I could articulate it in that way, and because I could tell him how this was harming his life as well. Yeah. It worked. It clicked. And so that's when I started to think, what do other people do when they have these moments of tears on their kitchen floor? Because do they have the words? Do they know Mm -hmm. how to express what's happening? Do they have the statistics? And that was like another big Mm -hmm. piece of the puzzle. Maybe that's what I need to do is to share all of this so that people have the tools and the words and the language to talk about this when they need to talk about it. And I'm so glad you did. There are a few things that you said there. And when I was reading your book, it was interesting to me because so many women or single moms, not single moms, moms have a specific man to be mad at. And because I've been a single parent, the majority of my daughter's life of now 13 years, I did not have only one man to be mad at. Like even living with, there wasn't this, right? This person who was responsible for helping me inside this home. But there were so many pieces that I was like, this, I have been trying to explain this for, and Mm. you did exactly that. You gave me the words. The only way Mm. it can be solved is when men are getting on board. And with everything, there is always this, whether you realize it or not, you're explaining to yourself what's in it for me. And when you don't understand the ways that it's hurting you and you don't have a way to name those things and all the ways society is also putting pressure on men who would then become dads. And then you did such an amazing job. And it was the first time that I've heard it framed like this. Thank you. Who is this book addressed to, Kate? I think it is addressed to lots of different people. I wrote it for people who are starting relationships. So young couples, not necessarily young in years, but young in relationship. So Mm -hmm. whenever you come together and you decide to move in together or to get married or to become engaged, I think that's a great time. So that's a target audience. First time parents, Mm -hmm. you're expecting your first child. You just had your first child because that changes the dynamic. I wrote it for grandparents. I wrote it for grandparents who are highly Mm -hmm. involved in their grandkids' lives and they 
aren't quite up to date with gender language, but they want to be supportive and they want to know what words and actions can help that young family be or Mm. achieve gender equality. I wrote it for community leaders. I wrote it for single people who are maybe younger people, like early 20s, who might be interested in a relationship someday, but are figuring out what kind of person they're looking for to help them have some bullet points in their heads when they're going out and dating and talking to people. I wrote it for lots of different people. And I hope it's interesting that you asked me that when I was writing the book, I had these heads cut out of construction paper Mm. and I had different like audiences, like 18 year old Mm. single person, 30 year old pregnant for the first time. And I like taped them up on my wall so that when I would get stuck on how I would phrase something, I would literally look at these construction paper people and think, Mm. how would it resonate with you? How would it resonate with you? Because I was trying to reach a broad audience. You talk about this unequal division of labor in the home is a solid predictor of conflict. And over recent years, especially in the U.S., and I think the trend is mirrored a bit around the world is higher rates of divorce. And we have blamed this mm. in America on so many things. And it's usually because it's, a, women, it's always an easy escape goat. Isn't it? It's usually because women just aren't happy now or they're focusing on their careers or their the list goes on and on or because people aren't committed no matter what anymore, right? Which basically is Mm. people are not just taking all the shit anymore. Or maybe they are not like trapped financially in an institution that they might have a bit of freedom. But the fact that you point out, yes, we are facing huge divorce rates. And my thing was, this is hurting all of us. This is hurting all of us because with this resentment, feeling lonely, not having energy at the end of a day, there's no room for self. Mm. Of course, you become unhappy and people are leaving their relationships. And then in the end, what are we looking at? We're looking at two people in a relationship that are likely hurt by the dissolvement of it. You're looking at kids who are, of course, Financially impact. I mean, you're impacted a divorce. Even in the best of circumstances, statistically speaking, parents or children of divorced parents, they struggle with different things in the ways that their peers who are in a solid two parent home are not struggling. And I love that Mm. you made this point. I do think that for a long time, and I still hear it, that high divorce rate is blamed on women want too much. Women are focused on their work too much. They're ignoring their husband. They're ignoring their family. There was an article recently on, I think it was on Medium. I can find it if you want to put it in your show notes. But it was a great article. And it was saying like, our problem isn't feminism. Our problem is our response to feminism. Like (laughs) women being equal members of our society that's great. Mm. That's not a problem. It's our response to that that's the problem. And I still feel that we're in this social messy period. And I think part of the reason, and I think I said this outright in the book, is that we have changed the way we raise girls. We raise girls very differently now than we did 20 years ago. 
for the better. And mm. all of this, all the STEM and STEAM projects and all of the women in science and all of the sky's the limit for you. And now girls are outperforming boys in American high schools and colleges. But we haven't changed the way we raise boys. We haven't changed boys to be more vulnerable, to be more emotional, to express themselves differently, to give up, to not feel like they have to make a certain amount of money to be a man, that they can be masculine mm. in all these different ways. I think that we have opened up lots of different ways to be a woman, but we still need to work with our boys to be clear that there's so many different ways you can be a boy. And I think that when mm. that comes to partnership, when everyone grows up and they're in their mid twenties, there are all these women who are like ready to tackle the world. And then they meet these guys who are like, aren't you going to cook me dinner? No wonder, no wonder there's a little bit of tension there. Yeah. Mm. Can, can you demystify this concept that you talked about around average partner? And I think you, you put a scale from king of the castle to equal partner. <laughs> yeah, I just needed some vocabulary because it didn't exist. What existed was I wanted a way to articulate the difference between a helper partner and an equal partner. That language wasn't out there for me. So when I wanted to talk to friends about it or colleagues about it, I was always struggling with words. So I started with King of the Castle, which a friend of mine actually suggested that because that kind of gives us a benchmark of like what we grew up with in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Our fathers, our grandfathers, sort of the, I work, I do nothing at home. I am the king of my castle. Like my only mm. contribution to this home is financial. And after that, I get to choose when I play ball with my kid, but there's no responsibility I have. And we see less mm. and less of that now, but we also aren't at equality and I'll flip over. So an equal partner is someone who does 50% of the cognitive and physical tasks. This is the person that not only unloads the dishwasher automatically when they see it's clean, that not only picks up more diapers when you're running out, that not only washes clothes and dishes and grocery shops, but also has that cognitive load as well. Managing schedules. Oh, the kids don't have school three weeks from Friday. We need to find a babysitter or a neighbor or one of us has to take off. Realizing, wait, oh, my son's clothes are fitting him a little tight. It's time to go and do another shopping trip, right? That's the mm. cognitive labor. That's the anticipation of needs. And an equal partner needs to do that. And then what I, in between the king and the equal partner, I made this helper, helper partner role, which is the person who is happy to make dinner, is happy to give someone a bath, is happy to read a bedtime story, but needs to be asked. Needs a to-do list. The guy in the advertisements. Yes. Or when it's convenient. It, or when it's convenient. And I think this is the most common yeah husband we have today. I just mm -hmm. think this is what I see in film. This is what I see in TV. This is what I see anecdotally with my, in my friends' relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's also what we see in data, right? We see that in different sex relationships, right. the men are doing about one third of the work and women are doing about two thirds of the work. And I don't think this is good enough. I don't think this, well, I don't think we should stop here. I don't yeah. think we haven't reached a goal. I was just going to ask you when people are saying, but they're doing so much more than my parents. Men are doing so much more. You also included some stats that talk about, okay, let's play that game. At this mm. pace, when will we have equality? And this is one where I really panicked. 
because just as you mentioned, we're raising our girls differently. I've done that. I've done that because I don't want my daughter to be in a world that I was in. I want her to have a different reality. And so I did all the controllable factors, right? (laughs) Which was how I raised her. But then I saw your stat and I just thought, oh shit, I don't have that. I do not have this kind of time because the most dismal outlook was 164 years. And even the most, if you want to call it optimistic, was from a men's organization that was saying 75, 75 years. This is too long. It's too long. And I don't even buy that 75 years. So we have chore journals. I'm sure that they did a lot of research and adequate math, but it just seems too short for me because when you look at say from 1985 to 2020, men's participation Mm. has only changed 2%. And with the calculating. In 35 years. (laughs) In 35 years. And we can't forget the pandemic. Which set us back. I don't even know. I don't have a number for that either, but No, we're not getting there naturally. I think a lot of people think that. They're like, oh, we're just naturally moving in the right direction. We'll be there. Not soon enough. Not in my lifetime. And you think pandemic didn't help in this regard? Like my experience says something totally different. I think the pandemic helped some families and I think it hurt some families. I don't think that there was a Mm. consistent movement. I think some families, it brought both parents in the household And I think because both parents were there and could see everything that had to be done, it enabled a lot of helper partners to step up. I've also seen a lot of stories where that helper partner was the one who got the bedroom office and closed their door for nine hours a day and did their full day of work. Mm. And it was the cognitive Mm. labor partner who's made their office the kitchen and was homeschooling two kids and trying to keep up with their work at the same time. And had a nervous breakdown Mm. halfway through Mm. the pandemic. So I've seen lots of qualitative evidence, but I haven't seen quantitative to really know where that split. Mm. I don't think we have that yet. Not that I've seen anyway. When talking about these various titles that you came up with, the king of the castle, the hands-on husband, Mm. and then the equal partner, phrase that or concept that I found really interesting that There were a couple things that I think we should talk about today. One is empathy. This Mm -hmm. was new and I was like, oh, but it's not new. And the other one was maternal gatekeeping, which Mm. I also was like, oh, whoops, I need to improve. But can we talk about empathy for a second? What is that? Empathy, and this is not my word, Kate Mann came up with this term in her book, Down Girl, which is phenomenal. If anyone wants to read that, I highly recommend it. She's a professor of philosophy and I don't know her personally, but adore her work. Empathy is when we empathize more with men's feelings and men's needs and women are socialized. We are literally raised, not Mm. directly told, but just all of those the reaction, the feedback, the, right? The mm-hmm. just we just learn it as we grow up. We're socialized to put men's feelings and needs ahead of our own. And so, when you both come home from work after a really long day, and you're both dragging tired, oh, honey, you sit down and rest. I'll put dinner together. 
or if it's who's going to give up whatever they want to do on Saturday to take the kids to a birthday party. Oh, I know you've been looking forward to this time off with the guys for a long time. You go, I'll take the kids. I think that it's this Mm. uncomfortableness with asserting yourself. It's an uncomfortableness with saying, no, I deserve this as much as you do. And so we need to trade off and on. The example I gave in the book is when my husband and I were both offered work opportunities in the same month and they could not Mm. both happen. It was geographically impossible for both of us to take these opportunities. We had to decide which one of us was going to do it. And he had the last two, like the last two times that happened, he had gone forward. And so he was like, no, it's your turn. And it was actually the opportunity to write this book. He was like, you do it. You take it. You need to do this. This is your turn. But I felt uncomfortable with asserting myself and asking him to turn down something, especially on a book project that I didn't know was ever going to come to fruition or if it was going to be any good. Like it was so early in the book stages Mm -hmm. and it took my mom, my partner, a couple girlfriends, a colleague of his from work. It took eight or 10 people before I thought, okay, this is an okay decision. It's okay that I take this and I ask him to back down. So it's just this feeling Mm. that women are raised with that we need to, Mm. for example, it happens in work situations all the time. During Mm -hmm. the pandemic, I was at home virtual schooling my two kids. I was trying to hold down a full-time job and I was working with a team of women on this one project and they kept asking me for extra time. And can you have a quick meeting at 8 p.m.? And can you start at 7 a.m.? And they didn't have any problem asking me to push my boundaries. But there was one man mm-hmm. on the team and there was a meeting once. And I said, well, maybe we'll call him John. Maybe John can do it. And the other women came to his defense and just said, oh, John is so busy homeschooling his kids and he's trying to do his job <laughs> at home. And I don't want to bother him. Yeah. Can you do it, Kate? Yeah. So I just think empathy happens in all these different spaces. Yeah. Mm. We protect men's feelings and men don't need us to protect their feelings and we don't need to do it. I think it's a real thing and I think it's something that we need to work to. So we talked about the different kinds, right? The king of the castle, the hands-on husband, the equal partner. And in the mm. book, you have interviewed 40 different sets of equal partners. But before we even go into those pieces, I found the origin stories incredible because there were some similarities that you found. We can agree that this equal partnership, like you said, it's not a natural thing. It's very intentional. And so you wanted to know, where did that come from? Can you talk about some of the origin stories of those different people and places? Yeah, there were very few. So just to let listeners know, when I set out, I actually, I think I intended for 50 because that sounded like a really nice round number. And I got to 40 and that had taken me over a year. So I was like, okay, 40 is good. So this wasn't an easy task to begin with. This was not an easy task. And I don't think that it's because they don't exist. I think it's because there's no network. If I wanted to interview people on the PTA, I could send an email out to thousands tomorrow because there's networks that you can tap into. There's Mm -hmm. Facebook groups. There's no Mm. Twitter account for equal partners yet. And so I couldn't find those people easily. And so I had to just network it and do snowball sampling. And it took time and I had to vet everyone through an interview series. 
And I didn't want everyone to be white with a master's degree living mm. between New York and DC. I wanted mm -hmm. to talk to all different kinds of people from all over the country. I included some Canadians. I just wanted a diverse group of men. I oversampled for men of color mm. because we traditionally undersample men of color. So half mm -hmm. of my EP40 were men of color. And I included a couple first-generation Americans as well as others. So I worked really hard to get this diverse set. And when I finally got to into their origin stories, no surprise, they were all totally different. And they all had a different pathway mm. to where they are now. I did find some trends. One of the biggest trends was, I think I want to say 75% of them felt othered at some point in their life. Either they mm. were the only boy with a disability in their high school. They were the poorest mm. kid in their middle school. They were the only person of color in a very white suburb. But in some way mm. or another, 75% of them had mm. experienced being othered. And by being pushed mm. out and by knowing how that feels to be pushed out, knowing how you are death by paper cut, right? You can never do anything right. You can never be smart enough. You can never be good enough. You can never be put together enough, you step out of line and everyone jumps on you. By having that experience, they could empathize with gender inequality more easily. And how did that come to you? Like, how did that come calling to you in your face that this is the trend that you're seeing? Was it something that you were actively looking for or was it? It just happened when I asked them about their upbringing. I asked in the interview process, I asked a lot about, tell me about your household when you were a kid. Tell me about school. Mm. Tell me about how you fit, how you felt. Did, were you the football player? Did you have lots of friends? Did you have girlfriends? Did you have boyfriends? I was mm. just talking. I was just talking and listening and then good old fashioned coding of what I heard and to group experiences to find continuity between them. Mm. And my guess is that they probably didn't see that as a defining angle. Yeah. No, I think it took, I think it's interesting. It took being part of a group and then reading about what the other 39 said for them to start to right. see that in their own life. Yeah. Another big trend I saw, 25% of them were raised by single moms. That they did see. I think a lot of them understood how impactful that mm. was because they were a team. Their mom couldn't bring in enough money and do everything in the house without kids help. And so the households just became a team and everyone knew how to iron clothes and everyone knew how to cook dinner and everyone knew what the staples were needed at the grocery store and everyone helped mm -hmm. with calendar planning. And because those boys learned those skills young, they carried it into their relationship when they grew up. If mm. Olive had one of those dolls that you pull the string on the back and it says, and it was like a doll of me, right? <laughs> one of the things that I believe she would say that doll says is I am just one person. I am just one person. And yeah. so I'm not raising a little boy, but when I read that, I was like, oh, Talk about pulling the heartstrings. You're so afraid because statistically, all the disadvantages that kids coming from single parent homes have. And it's okay. Mm. Maybe all those things or more likely all those things. But okay, yay for this redeeming quality. Yay for this one. And of all it talks about role modeling. Yes, of course. Role modeling is super important. That's always fantastic. 
only two out of the 40 had their parents role model equity in the household. 38 of them came from either very traditional homes, Mm. single parent homes, or violent and abusive homes. I had one man who was raised in shelters because his father was always physically abusing him and his siblings and his mother. And so they were in and out of shelters for most of his upbringing. So the pendulum effect. Yeah, exactly. Sure, role modeling parity is fantastic, but not everyone has that option. And so it should never be used as an excuse or a reason Mm. why you Mm. can't be different. And I think that was probably Mm. one of the most hopeful messages that came out of the research is that it doesn't matter what your background is with the right, Mm. with intention, as you said, Tiffany, with intention and help. No one can do it on their own. You need a network. You need friends. You need support. You need help. But with intention and network, anyone can be an equal partner if that's what you want to do. It doesn't matter where you come from. And I think that's really reassuring. Mm. It's reassuring for me, right? Mm. Because no one comes from a perfect home. A perfect home doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. right? There's lots Mm -hmm. of different ways to raise happy kids. Yeah. That brings me to the next part I wanted to talk to you about, which is the glass ceiling for men. And I also think this is probably part of where maternal gatekeeping comes in. Do you want to tell us about that? So let's go back. Let's I'll define maternal gatekeeping. And I I even wrote this in the book. I think I had to have it like a GNT before I wrote this chapter because when you're writing about <laughs> gender equality, it's really hard to tell women they're doing something wrong, right? Because women are we're always mm. someone's always trying to fix us. And so I get just as defensive as anyone else. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm done being fixed. And it's also always our it's fault. It's always our fault. Even at the beginning of the book, you talk about sexual assault. Yeah. And how we were approaching, like, women need to not dress this way. And women need to have keys between their fingers. And women need to not be out late at night. And yeah, we love to fix women. We love to tell women what they do wrong. We love to explain why whatever happened to you is because of you. That's just a narrative that we've become very Mm. familiar with, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So knowing all of that and believing it and being a feminist, I have a really hard time criticizing women. However, if we're really going to talk about gender equality and we're going to put our cards on the table and we're going to be honest, then we have to talk about maternal gatekeeping, which is a very Mm. real thing. And just like I understand where kings of the castle come from, right? Because the way they're socialized, I also understand where gatekeeping comes from. So I'm not blaming individuals. I'm blaming Mm -hmm. the system that creates these patterns of behavior. But maternal gatekeeping Mm -hmm. is when you make the assumption that mom knows best, that women have some sort of natural, inherent maternal instinct that men do not have, that we are Mm -hmm. better at caregiving, that we always know what's best for baby and we should listen, listen to me. And maternal gatekeeping can be, it can be very subtle. It can be like, you're leaving the house to go out. Mm -hmm. Why did you dress the baby in that? It's so cold. You need to put a coat on here. Give her to me and I'll put, I'll dress her appropriately. Let's just talk about, right. Okay. So it, how does that feel when you hear something like that? Oh, totally. I totally get it. You know, now that you say it, it just resonates. Actually, Tim, I was smiling because I think that could be the hook for the show. (laughs) it makes you feel terrible right absolutely absolutely incapable and just not an equal partner right 
Yes. It makes you feel incapable and incompetent. And Mm -hmm. how are you supposed to be an equal partner if you're spouse is constantly ripping you down for your, no, she doesn't like, she doesn't like brown rice anymore. You have to give her basmati rice or no, you don't. She doesn't like green anymore. You have to dress her in yellow, whatever Mm. it is. Let's be honest. Rice is rice and clothes are clothes. Here's my question. Mm. Yes. Now with rice and favorites (laughs) and like, they don't like those shoes. I get if not going out properly dressed leads to the cold that the mom will have to stay home with. Or if the medication that the child is supposed to get at a certain time, they're not getting at the certain time. And then the antibiotics are not working as they should because this one was good. I can't agree more. Like even as a single mom, I'm like, girl, let it go. If it doesn't hurt, let it be. Yeah. But when it comes to talking about equal partners and as moms carrying this load and also being the sufferers or the one to pay the debt later when the kid is sick or going back to the doctor or the teacher calls them to complain about the homework that was Yeah. How are we dealing with that one? Because this Mm. isn't, I don't think it's a mom knows best. It's love this tip, by the way. (laughs) This is, and that, and this is why I understand where maternal gatekeeping comes from. Maternal gatekeeping is a product of the fact that we culturally assume women are going to do everything. And we judge women Mm. when things go wrong and we assign all of the fallout to women. Just like you said, if the kid's sick, who's going to call off work and stay home? Who's going to take the kid to the doctor? Who's going to get the passive aggressive email from the teacher about why did you send your kid to school with a runny nose? Mm. So Mm. maternal gatekeeping is a product of the way we have a social structure that just assigns responsibility and thus judgment of any caregiving issue or problem to women. And I think Mm. it is something natural to adapt because you know, you're going to be judged if that child gets a cold. I think one way to combat it is to think about it again, intentionally and find your words. So Mm. instead of, you don't know what you're doing. We have to put a sweater on the kid. What are you thinking? She's going to be freezing. Be like, Mm. I don't know. It's why don't you feel the weather? It's a little chilly. We should at least pack a coat or we can let's put maybe what do you think about putting a layer on and then we can always Mm. take it off. Can you go grab something heavier? Like, I just think that if it's a conversation, Mm. if you change your language, Mm. so it's both of us making this decision together. And then Mm. when your partner suggests something, also accept that. So when your partner says, Mm. Hey, do we need to bring extra snacks? Yeah. Great idea. Throw them in the diaper bag, right? Like you want to create a household. So also not like owning the problem then and making it like your task, like the suggestion of, Oh, the kids probably need extra snacks. Yeah, they do. You could grab one. Grab some. That's fantastic. Right. So that we both were both working on this together. And then you could even say she can't get a cold Mm -hmm. because neither one of us want to call off work on Monday. Ooh, yeah, you're right. Let's Mm -hmm. go get a jacket. I just think that Mm -hmm. the way we phrase it. Yeah, I I get it. And I think something to what you said earlier, it takes a change of perspective and looking at your partner, which is male in this case, or husband, presumably as not as a helper, but as a partner. And I think if you're just kind of looking at your husband as somebody who's just helping you pack things or helping get get the kids ready, it's going to be hard to come with that judgment. So I think 
this really speaks to me. And I think I wish my wife was here listening to this as well. <laughs> if for one, you would have a lot more arguments to your favor, but this is, this is amazing. It's all about us all winning. <laughs> and you can, I hear a lot of mother-in-laws and older women, maternal gatekeeping oh, yes. to protect the power. And traditionally think about it for so long, the only power a woman had was in her household. So she shares right. that power with her partner. Mm. She's just letting it go. So it makes sense mm. why older generations are trying to protect that power that women still have. But I do agree with you, mm. I think, in the long run. And if it's available to people, one structural change that we can make that can help this social problem is parental mm. leave. I think that when men stay home with a child mm. by themselves... Mm -hmm. for weeks, for months, and have parental mm. leave when that baby or child enters the household, they learn very quickly, if I don't dress them warmly enough, they're going to get a cold. If I don't pack snacks, they're going right. to erupt in tears in the middle of the grocery store. If I don't know what the pediatrician's number is, anyway, all of these, you're the one to stay home. Mm. And you almost have to remove one partner needs time with the kid on their own without help, and then the other. So you both learn how to be the only parent sometimes, because it's only when you're put into mm. that circumstance that you learn all the little things that have to happen that single parents naturally figure out. Because as okay. you said, Tiffany, I am only one person. You both have to have that experience. Mm. Mm. It's interesting. We interviewed somebody last week, Jacob, definitely talking about parental leave. And he's mm. one of the guy, amazing guys we got on the show, you know, getting inspired by this book who went on a parental leave in equal mm -hmm. terms or in equal measures as with his wife. And that was exactly his finding that the fact that his wife or his kid is not dependent on his wife to bring him to bed is just a game changer, right? It's, yeah. It brings so much freedom in that relationship to be as equal partners for the women mm -hmm. as well. Empowering. So we talked a lot about how this will help women, right? And we also know how inequality hurts men now. And we're familiar, I like to think, with how it hurts women. But Deep said, with Jacob, and his episode will likely come out after yours, but Deep asked him, how do you get around mom knows best? And Jacob was like, a bit like deer in headlights. Like, he was like, what? No, we don't have that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is it. It's the starting from the beginning. Exactly as you said. Yeah. And so in places where parental leave is not an option, whether it's financially or even just logistically because mm -hmm. of the job that you have, we are already setting families up to break down. Yes, precisely. I was exactly on your wavelength. I think that what is so empowering to men, and I heard this over and over from the 40 men that I interviewed they felt so good about themselves that they were fully competent. They felt mm. good that their partner right. could go out of town and they hadn't. They felt good that they could do mm. bedtime, that they could nurture, that they could care, that when their child skinned a knee, they could run to either parent. Um, they felt that brought them joy. And that was one of the mm. motivations for living this lifestyle is because they felt like, being a parent feels great because it does. I love being a parent. It feels really good when it goes right. And if you don't get those hugs after skin knees, you just don't experience it as deeply as you could. There's one story, an anecdote, and 
I think the guy said something about there was a song he sang his child at night and then mm. he overheard the child singing it to their doll. And I was in tears reading this because it was like, what greater joy is there? And mm. it takes me back. I don't know if you read the book or remember from years ago, all joy and no fun. I do remember the, that book. The perils of modern day parenting. And it's yes. okay if it's so hard, which it is, why do it? <laughs> and the conclusion is there is this joy. And you talk about caregiving and how we are depriving men of this mm-hmm. opportunity to be a mm-hmm. part of that. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. The men that I interviewed Almost all of them, when I started the interview, they're like, I don't know what we're going to talk about. I'm just an average guy. And then four hours later, they're like, oh, and then this story. Once they got rolling, they loved sharing stories about caregiving. They love talking about their kids. They love talking about falling in love with their spouse. And I started to think maybe men love to talk about romance and caregiving just as much as women, but we don't bother to ever ask them. It's just, you just have Mm. to ask them different questions. But once I started asking about homes and caregiving and kids and falling in love and partners, we went, we would go on for hours. We never talked about work. That wasn't in my protocol. Like it would come up tangentially, but it wasn't the focus of any of my questions. And what a whole other identity. Did you get a chance to interview your husband as part of this process? And and I wonder, because you, you mentioned this incident that happened. All day, every day. <laughs> I tested my protocol on him. Objective, objectively. <laughs> objectively. No, of course, like yeah. he's like my sounding board. So he's every yeah. single night, even when it's like very inconvenient, when he'd be like exhausted and falling asleep. And I'd be like, can I talk to you about my interview today? And he'd be like, oh yeah, go <laughs> And I did tested my protocol on him. And that was really helpful. Yeah, he's been a huge supporter. And when people ask him, like, are you an equal partner? He's, what kind of guy has a wife who writes a book like that and then doesn't have the self-reflection? But I think we've both grown through this process. He's Mm -hmm. always been a feminist. He's always been on board. He's a very hard worker by nature, both in professionally and in the household. But Mm -hmm. I think that my research has helped us a lot too, because I feel like he we still fall into stereotypical gender roles and Mm. now we can call them out and work through them. He's really good Mm. with doing things. He's really good with cleaning and cooking and shopping and he's the meal maker in our house, but he's not always good with sitting down and talking about feelings now that our kids are older and sometimes their needs can't be met through laundry. They have to be met through talking it out and listening. Oh, and he's Tell not as good it. at that. And he knows he's not as good at that, but that's a gendered mm-hmm. thing. I was raised to be more comfortable with emotions and feelings and he wasn't. And so we're working on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that equality evolves as your kids grow older. The role that yeah. you have with a five-year-old or a baby is very different than a 15-year-old. But I think it's important to keep up that relationship and to mm-hmm. see them through the teen years, because then that will solidify your relationship when your kids are adults. We talk so often on the show about it's called rerouting. This is a journey. There is no map. There is no one way. And even with this, it's constant growing and changing. And it's really 
having a child is the longest, most consistent, bravest self-improvement journey a person can possibly go on. And so as your child's Mm. needs change, you also have the opportunity to grow, develop as a person. So it's interesting when I actually started interviewing men, I asked a question. Are you sad that you're giving things up to be this way? Are you missing things? Do you realize Mm. that other guys get to do things that you don't get to do? And does that make you bitter or resentful? This whole Mm -hmm. idea of Mm. the patriarchal dividend, which is an academic named Cannell, coined that term to describe this, like, you have to give something up willingly, some sort of privilege to be an equal partner. And the men that I interviewed, the first, say, five or six, were just like, no, what are you talking about? I'm not giving anything up. This isn't about a sacrifice. I'm not doing this. I guess my wife benefits or my partner, because not all the... 35 were in partnerships with women and five were in partnerships with men. So they're like, I guess my partner benefits, but I benefit more. I'm doing this for myself. This is a selfish Mm. act. I'm doing this because it's better for me. And Mm. I was like, oh, wow, that changes everything. So I actually changed my protocol. (laughs) I changed my protocol, like after the first five or six interviews to say, what's the benefit? What motivates you? And what are the benefits to you to do it? And Mm. the stories were endless. First of all, they all had happy relationships. Their partners didn't nag them. They didn't need to because they always did what they were supposed to do. So they got along really Mm. well. They were in love with their partner, all 40 of them. They were in relationships, which were hard. So there were months and years that were harder than others. But generally speaking, they were doing well, right? Mm -hmm. They had great relationships with their kids. They rewrote or redefined this concept of providing for my family, that they realized Mm. that providing for my family is not just material. It's also caregiving and time spent. And when they realized that and they realized, wow, I can provide for my family in a comprehensive way, that was, they were proud of that. They loved that. That brought them more joy then I can play golf on Saturday, but I know I couldn't take care of my kids in a pinch, right? One thing that Mm. came up over and over was they felt like they could be their own authentic selves. Men talk a lot about having to perform masculinity. And a lot of them said, I still perform masculinity in my office or at work or with guys, Mm -hmm. but in my home, I don't have Mm. to perform. I don't have to fake it. I don't have to be the strong guy. I don't have to be the tough guy. I don't have to be the guy that can handle all the problems. I don't have to be the guy that has to earn a certain amount of money. I am loved for who I am. And that was Mm. huge after a lifetime of performing masculinities to gain friends, to get a promotion at work, to do whatever. And I had a couple men who had previous relationships where they had to perform masculinity. And then when they became equal partners, they realized what a relief it was to just be themselves with their partners in their home. That was huge for them. Wow. That makes me so Mm. sad. Yeah. I mean, I have a little girl that I'm raising, but I just imagined in my head right now, if I have a little boy or, I mean, I can think about Yanish, Steve, how sad to feel like you have to go through life. And be someone that someone's defined you. With a certain prescription. Yeah. Everybody at our core, all we want is to just be seen and to be loved as Mm. us who we are. It's 
it feels so simple. Why is it so damn hard? (laughs) (laughs) But I think it it was so interesting to hear it over and over unprompted from all of these men who just talked about, because I guess as a woman, I didn't see it. I didn't see how hard it was for younger men and how hard they had to work at performing masculinity. And if they weren't traditionally masculine men, if they weren't tall and strong and whatever, Mm -hmm. how much harder it was for them. I didn't see that. And so to hear it over and over, they're like, yeah, this is obvious. This is, it's hard work to not be yourself. And it's lovely mm-hmm. when you find a space where you can be yourself. Mm-hmm. It's talking about kids and training them to be themselves. It's hard enough to recognize that this is the stereotype that needs to be broken, but it's harder when the kid goes out there in the school and he faces all that stuff day mm-hmm. in, day out. The peer pressure comes in. Yeah. Did you... Find something to that. Olive has, you mentioned in the book, bedtime stories for rebel, rebel girls. Olive yeah. has it in two languages. Mm. Like, she, yeah. literally, she has it in German yeah. and English. And when you were like, but how are we raising boys? So what can we do for our boys? There's so much we can do for our boys. I think it starts with thinking about how you talk about your boys when they're little. You don't hold a baby Mm. boy and tell him he looks tough and he's going to be a ball player. You call him sweet and beautiful because that's what babies are. They're sweet and beautiful, right? And it goes from there. I think that we need to teach (laughs) boys that they sort of reprogram our heads into instead of how are we going to raise boys and girls, how are we going to raise people? What attributes Mm. do we want Mm. with our children regardless of their gender identity? We Mm. want them to be thoughtful. We want them to be kind. We want them to be independent. We want them, whatever they are, whatever your values are as a family, degender those values. One thing that we do socially, sometimes subconsciously, is we do not allow boys to be emotional. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's overt, suck it up, don't cry, keep going. And sometimes it's more subliminal. So allowing boys to be emotional and to teach them the word that matches their feeling is incredibly important. And boys tend to stop at mad, sad, glad. So you need to move beyond that. If your son says he's feeling mad or angry or sad, say, okay, that's a great start. Let's find some other words that also might describe how you're feeling and find words that are a bit more specific. I'm feeling defeated. I'm feeling left out. Mm. I'm feeling... Mm frustrated. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling humiliated. Find a range of words and help your son understand the meaning of those words. Help him match those words with how he feels and then validate that feeling. You feel Mm -hmm. humiliated. I get that. That's normal. Lots of people feel that way. I would feel that way after your experience. That's a, that I get that. Mm -hmm. Validate that Mm -hmm. feeling. Then they grow up. That's one of the number one complaints that women make about male partners is I can't talk to them. They don't let me in. They don't listen to me. That sort of work through little boy and teenage years will enable men to grow up and have a deeper connection with partners. And will they'll be better able to empathize with, with their partners. When their female partner comes home from work and says, I tried to talk in a meeting and all the guys talked over me and I felt humiliated. He'll be like, oh, I know what that feels like. I can empathize. Mm. Let's talk about that. Mm. And so I think that that's one of the most important things that we need to do with boys. Yeah, I could go on, but I think that's a really good place to start. <laughs> I think so. And there's too. book of theirs. 
Yeah. And then behind me, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of great material out there to open tween and teen boys up into conversations that they typically have not had before. Like most boy conversations still revolve around sports. We please move beyond that. If you love sports, that's fantastic. There's other stuff that we can talk about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we do a great job. Even just thinking about Olive, right? I raised her. She had blocks because of STEM. You can be all these things. You can play with blocks. You can play with tools. You can play with dinosaurs. And I do see this like culturally not being such a divide as in the States. It still exists. But boys with dolls. Boys loving Elsa. Or boy, like, it's just so binary. Yeah. And... Yeah, when they're playing with dolls, and this is when they're exercising some of the care giving and taking, wiping its nose, saying that it's crying, acknowledging feeling type things. Mm. And Mm. I think this is a good example of when community can come in and support. My son had a baby carrier for a baby doll. And for, I feel like his entire third year he was wearing he would come home from school and strap on this carrier and carry his baby around the house and kiss her and take care of her and he'd walk around the Mm. playground that way because he has an older sister that he idealizes and my daughter had one too so of course he didn't we didn't put any restrictions on that behavior in our household and so he didn't think there was anything wrong with it which I don't Mm. think there is so he would walk around the neighborhood with his little baby on his thing or with a stroller and we would get either People would applaud him and react too positively, calling out as if like over rewarding, or they would give us Mm. this look like, what What do you, (laughs) like they disapprove. They're very openly disapproving. Mm. I didn't need either of those. Just let kids be kids. Just Just let them be. Mm. Yeah. Just let them be. If they want to play with dolls, if they want to play with toy food and toy kitchens, if they want to play with blocks give all kids of any gender a bunch of different toys and just let them be kids and just, just let them be. Yeah. Just let them be. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about how we can begin to change the way we raise boys to give them a better shot, right? At this equal partner thing when they're older. The last part of your book, you talk about living gender equality. And I just... Damn, Kate, I loved your book so much. One of the other things that I love so much about this. So you do a great job at the beginning of framing it for us and providing some really great stats that everybody, you read it and you're like, oh, I see the problem clearly. And you're like, and here's some examples. Here's 40 people who are doing this equal partner thing and how it's working. Okay, great. It's good for them. And then you're like, boom, section three. I'm going to give you the tools to do this. And I think something that's really important because we're not talking about one little change. This is a cultural shift. This takes time. We know this takes effort. This takes a lot of people and a lot of different actions all Mm. the time. But the way you break it down is, yo, take one bite, take one step. You don't need to do all these things. I think you even said, consider it a menu. Yeah. I think that it's overwhelming. It's global warming or gender inequality. Like they're just, they're such overwhelming 
problems Mm -hmm. that you think, how am I one person going to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And when it comes to gender, I just think you don't have to do everything. You don't have to do Mm. it all the time. You just have to do something more than you're doing now. Even if it's just one or two little things, if we all did one or two little things, they would have a monumental change. And I also, yes, it's going to take us a long time in terms of the years ahead of us, but it doesn't take Mm -hmm. extra time out of your day. It doesn't take extra time out of your week. You might need a few hours to read my book or to read someone else's book or to Google some articles so Mm. you have new language. But once you get through that, once you've learned the self-reflection, it doesn't take time out of your day. You're just tweaking the words that you're using, or you're just tweaking Mm. the way that you're talking to children, or you're tweaking the way that you talk to your partner. And so chapter nine, I think, yeah, chapter nine is about self-reflection. What can you do yourself? Can you change the way you think about things? You mentioned the glass ceiling earlier. We have a very uh, common term around this glass ceiling for women, like this concept of it's a professional ceiling. It's like you can see through it, but you can't get above it. Women are only allowed to do so much in a professional setting. Mm. There is a men's glass Mm. ceiling too, and it's in the home. And it's a combination of empathy and maternal gatekeeping and low expectations, but we don't expect men to be equal partners or stay-at-home dads, and we prevent them from getting there. And if you think about, no one no one wants to have a glass ceiling. No one wants to be put in a box. No one wants to have restrictions. No one wants anyone else to tell them, you can't do this because of your gender identity. That's ridiculous. Like, mm. we should be beyond mm. that now. The sky should be the mm. limit for women professionally, and the sky should be the limit for men emotionally. And, and I think that, Sometimes what we have to get over most is just our own thinking and our own biases. Mm -hmm. And we have to, the work that we do is internal. You talk about the steps that you can take and a couple of them are choosing your role models and Mm -hmm. being a role model. What do you mean by that? I think a lot of us have role models in our life that were given to us or we've assumed should be our role models. Like, parents Mm. or professors or superheroes or politicians or academics or wherever your career lies. Startup CEOs. Startup CEOs. Yeah. Whoever that role model is in your profession or your industry. But sometimes the role models we have in our life don't really make sense, right? Like sometimes you might adore your parents and you might always love them and they might be a big part of your life. But if they had a really traditional relationship that you don't want to repeat, Mm. maybe they're not your Mm. role model for how you do your home. Mm. Maybe you choose another Mm. role model. Maybe you use a cousin or a neighbor or a work colleague. I think sometimes we're not intentional enough about thinking about who we know in our life could be a famous person on TV or it could be someone who we see every day. doesn't matter. But thinking through, I want to be more like that person, right? And so Mm. I want to intentionally make that person my role model. And then think about what behavior you are role modeling to others. Mm -hmm. One really interesting thing I learned when interviewing the EP40 is that they their role models weren't just their parents. In fact, very few of them mentioned their parents. They were all over. It was camp counselors, 
their mom's boyfriend from 85 to 87, Mm. teacher, a babysitter, a high school girlfriend, like their role models Mm. came from everywhere. And so I don't think we're always conscious of the impact Mm. we're having on other people around us. All of those people that were named probably have no idea how much of an impact they made Mm. on those men's lives. So Mm. just knowing there are people watching there was one one man who said a huge role model of his was his uncle who he only saw for one week every summer. Mm. You don't have to see people every day. Yeah. If you see your nephew one week a year or every single weekend, you can be a role model. So be conscious Boom. of what you're saying. Be <laughs> conscious of your actions. Be conscious of your words. Which goes directly mm. into being a role model and talking yeah. about... Where do I have influence? What is my circle of influence? Recognizing that the people who were your role models may not even know. It very well could be for you that you are modeling something to people and you don't even know how impactful it is. Absolutely. So just do your best all the time. If you are a teacher or a coach, you know, your faith community, you might see people, you know, at, at religious gatherings once a week or how often you go mm-hmm. and there might be other families that are looking up to you and you would never know it. But I just think that being, being a role model all the time and watching your language all the time, because you never know who's listening. What do you say to the, the argument against equal partners? Or you see a lot of, you might mm-hmm. have seen a lot of men coming to the terms like, hey, if I were to be an equal partner, if I were to contribute more in cognitive loads, it means I have to sacrifice my career or it means that I don't have enough time where I model people like the successful CEOs. What do you say to that? So interestingly enough, all of the 40 men that I interviewed, no one was a CEO. No one was a partner Mm. in a law firm. They all had jobs Mm. that you could complete in around 40 hours a week. It would ebb and flow, but they did not have these power jobs. I think that's a really interesting conversation about there are jobs that require you, if you're a surgeon, there's just politicians. There are just Mm. jobs out there that require you to work crazy hours. Until we can change our work culture, in the meantime, I think you have to find a way to adapt. So everyone I interviewed in my book, 40 couples, All of them had full-time jobs. All of them worked outside Mm. the home. All of them brought money into the household. And then all of them divvied up the household labor equally. However, if one of you decides to work part-time, I think that would shift. If one of you decides to stay home full-time, that shifts. And I think Mm. shifting is fine. I think whatever works for any family is great. If it's working for you, don't change it, right? This is only for people who are looking for a change. Mm -hmm. But be aware of gender norms. Be aware of how your own socialization might be influencing the decisions that you're making. Be aware Mm. of the pay loop. We know that women are underpaid compared to men doing the same job. They're not making the Mm -hmm. same money on a dollar. Mm -hmm. So when one of you wants to pull back from work to focus on having little kids, if you pick the person who's making less, it's often going to be the woman, which then takes her away from the opportunities to make more money, which just keeps that cycle going. Right. So to break this cycle, you have to, again, be intentional and figure mm-hmm. out what are we going to do in our family to counter those gender norms yeah. that have influenced our behavior over the years. Yeah. You even say at one point in the book, 
this doesn't mean a 50-50 split. You're talking about equity and finding ways to maintain an equitable balance, quoting you now, through extraordinary times is a necessary strategy for the long term. Mm -hmm. There are naturally times in life when the kids need more attention. There are times in life when maybe one partner has an opportunity at work where somebody has to pick up a little more at home. So I think what, and I think the danger whenever we are pushing a new idea that it's all or nothing, yeah, black and white, you're in or you're out. And that was the other thing I loved. I loved everything about this book. I can just quit saying that there's a thing and then there's just like a whole list, but it is not this way, which in the U.S. is a huge problem right now. It's very black and white. It's very divisive and it's very no one wins. No one can win when it's all or nothing or maybe some, I don't know. I don't really think anybody's winning. It doesn't look like it. I do agree, though, that it is not, it's not cut and dry. I would never suggest that you follow each other around with an Excel spreadsheet to see if you're doing 50-50 every day. That's not Life a recipe for love. And- That's not a, no, <laughs> that is a recipe for disaster. Yes, of course. I interviewed two female partners for chapter, I can't remember what chapter it was, but they were really interesting. One of them was going through her residency in med school, and she's like, mm-hmm. I'm at the hospital all the time. That's just, it's one year of my life when I am just working constantly. If I did equal at home, I would spend every hour off doing housework and then we would have no time together. So the way they overcame that period of time was that they were each going to spend 25% of their free time on doing household stuff. And that that felt equitable for them. They were both happy with that arrangement. It felt fair. Neither one of them was bitter with the other. For, so again, constant communication. Constant. It was about communication mm-hmm. and finding what works for you and knowing that every couple, it's going to be a little bit different. Yeah, I think it's just, I think that's a really great point, Tiffany, is that this isn't about a model and doing it or not doing it. It's fuzzy and it's messy and that's what makes it hard. But that is also what can make it work. This actually is one of the things you, you talk about identifying triggers. So we've picked our role models. We identify where we have some influence, but identifying triggers. And for me, that was more about, again, honing in that area of influence. Do I have influence with this person? And do I have energy? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, because we all have triggers, we all have people that try to wind us up and that it just ends up being wasted energy and wasted anger and wasted Mm. frustration. Are you ever going to change their mind? Probably not. Do you care? (laughs) No, but you just know that person is going to needle you. What are some examples? Like when we're talking about triggers, like what are... I've had a couple in my life. The colleague that just loves to say anything anti-feminist to get under your skin. I've had those colleagues before. There used to be a woman at the pickup, a mom that at school pickup and our kids when they were in like a daycare situation. And we would be waiting in the parking lot together every day for about 10 minutes before the kids would come out. And she just loved to needle me about anything that was equality related because she didn't buy it, right? She thought a woman's place was in the home and she thought that I was a horrible parent for working and she wanted to tell me all the time. And 
They would get under my skin. They would frustrate me. They would make me want to shout back. But what's the point? Like, I wasn't going to win the battle with that misogynist colleague. And I wasn't going to win the battle with this woman at the Mm -hmm. playground. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't value or respect their opinion enough to make that kind of an effort. So I just learned to say they're triggers for me. So I'm just going to change the subject or I'm just going to put my head in my phone or I'm just going to walk away or sit with that. You just, why put yourself through that? Mm -hmm. So identify the things that drive you crazy and then avoid them because no one needs extra energy. Yeah. Yeah. And so along with this, um, Understanding your area of influence, but also understanding your area of not influence and not wasting time or space there. A few other things. I'm a sucker for lists and you have your top five gendered statements and we don't have to go through them all here. But one of my favorites that was triggering for me when I heard it given to my daughter, boys will be boys. That means he likes you. And I was like, hard no. We are not putting the equation of if he's mean to me and treats me like crap, he likes me. I like I I'm gonna help you with this math problem now. But the world (laughs) is still wanting to feed this to her. So that was one that I was like, thank you. Can we retire this? Because you're like, okay, you don't know where to start. Here, let me give you five, and these are easy. Yeah, don't say that anymore. Never. Yeah, just wipe it out of your vocabulary. (laughs) I just, anytime you say girls are so blank, boys are so blank, it just, it sticks to the gender binary. It puts people in boxes. It makes very broad assumptions. I just heard it the other day. Boys are so gross. Like boys love gross humor. That's what was said to me. Boys love a good fart joke or something like that. I just heard it a few days ago and I said, I don't know. My daughter loves fart jokes too. I just tend to, I keep them really lighthearted, but I always counter it. Yeah. <laughs> Kids love fart jokes. Love Let's just be honest jokes. about that. Oh. And so to de-genderize these statements, it isn't about boys. Mm. And then it just, when you have this narrative, boys will be boys, boys are messy, boys are rowdy, boys are disgusting. Mm-hmm. Then we start forgiving boys for inappropriate behavior. And I think it's that forgiving boys mm-hmm. of inappropriate behavior that takes them into adulthood when we have empathy mm-hmm. for our male partners because they're slobs and we have to clean up after them. Mm-hmm. I think we have to hold boys to a higher standard. All kids should meet this level. Yeah. We shouldn't expect more out of our young women than we expect out of young men. And I have to say through this, we have stuck to the gender binary and the pronouns that we've Mm -hmm. used in this conversation. But I also have to say that using this language is also incredibly hurtful for children who do not identify as a boy or girl. And I think that it's also really hurtful when you don't fit into one box or another, and then you feel especially othered. So I think Mm -hmm. sticking to saying things like, hey, kids, instead of boys and girls, or all students over here. Anytime you can use a word that is inclusive of everyone is just going to be better for everyone. Yeah, yeah. That's something I will say I've grown to love about the English language. It's a lot easier than German or Spanish where every noun has a gender. Yeah, but yeah. It also would, selfishly, it just makes it harder for me to learn. So I wish we could do away with all that. Everybody have one article. It's the... And use it. And, I, and you're always like, is that pencil feminine or masculine? I can't remember. <laughs> Can someone explain the genitalia of this noun to me, please? 
<laughs> um, so two more things I want to hit on before we go. And one is... I'm just laughing because there was a section in your book that clarified between gender and sex. Or, yeah. And that was eye-opening because that is not taught in schools mm. to that level of detail. No, and it should, right? <laughs> and people misuse yeah. those words all the time. Yeah. So this idea of boys will be boys. And then the other side is that I have found other close friends of mine, women, this superwoman story. Everybody, oh, Tiffany, I don't know how, not everybody. Let's be real. (laughs) Some people who love me. I don't know how you do it all. It's how do you? And it, I don't want to be told I'm strong. I want to be weak. I want to rest. I want society to figure it out. I want there to not have the whole world on my shoulders. But that's not where we are. This idea of the superwoman story and then taking women and making them feel like less, which I used to do in my head. When I saw women with husbands who were helpful, I was like, must be nice to be her. Why am I mad at her? Good for her. And the truth is I'm jealous, right? So those are not mutually exclusive feelings. I think we can, and I had this other conversation with someone recently who said, you can both appreciate that someone else has something and kind of wish that you had it yourself. And I don't think it's jealousy because it's not a negative. Jealousy is always coded as negative or a bad characteristic. Mm -hmm. But I think I can recognize, oh, I know. It was a woman who's Ukrainian living in Romania. And she said, my son's father is fighting back in the Ukraine. He's not here with us Mm. back in Ukraine. Sorry, I didn't mean to use the definite article there. And he sees other kids with their fathers here and he's both happy for them that their fathers are here and he's missing his own father who's back fighting the war. And so I thought, yeah, you, that's not jealousy and that's not a bad feeling. I think it is perfectly reasonable to recognize that someone else had and you wish you had it too. But also just putting women, I think again, like I'm yes. not special. I don't have a choice. Thank you for the superpower, but it's not. It's called survival. No, thank you. No, thank it you. It is called survival. Unsubscribe. I don't want the superpower. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a Gen Xer. I was born in 1976. And I was raised with you can have it all if you are that superwoman. And if you just work insanely hard, you can have it all. That was a narrative of my upbringing. Oh, man. And I, I bought it, I too. bought it. I bought it. I was like, I want it all. I want it all. And I think that we continue to have higher standards for what... Oh, here's a development story that comes from my other work life, is that it's... How many times have I heard the World Bank say, when you give money to a woman... She spends it on health and education. And when you give money to a man, he spends it on booze and women. So we have all of these income generation programs targeted at women, not because it's better for the woman, but because she spends that money on health and education for her kids. And I'm at the point where I'm thinking, no, I'm tired. She should spend it on booze and women too. Like, why are we (laughs) expecting her to be at this level? To be the savior of humanity. He can spend his income on booze and women. We're going to let that happen. But she is held to the superpower, as you said, superwoman level, where she has to spend that money on health and education and self-sacrifice everything because it's not about her. It's about her children, mm. right? Her worth is in her mothering, not in her own being herself. Right. 
So social change in the workplace. We've talked a lot about what can we do in our everyday lives and worlds. And even if you are not a CEO or a boss, which I would argue if you are, here's what you can do, equal benefits for parents. But one thing that I recently was introduced to the term for it, which my instant instinct when I heard it was maternal gatekeeping and a bit of eye rolling because Mm -hmm. I thought like, whatever. Leaving loudly and men leaving loudly and the impact that this has. Can you explain what leaving loudly is? So leaving loudly is a concept that was coined by Brad Johnson and David Smith, who wrote Mm -hmm. Good Guys. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea that because caregiving is downplayed with men and men feel like that shouldn't be their focus and they're going to be judged in the workplace if they're taking time off to care for parents or children or whoever, that they need to sneak out of work. And so they sort of like schedule meetings around it and they like sneak out and schedule things during lunchtime and sneak back in because they don't want to call attention to the fact that they're leaving work to care give. And Brad and David say, no, it needs to be the opposite, that if men want to be allies in gender equality, one thing they can do is leave loudly. And especially men who have the power in their offices or workplaces to leave loudly. Not everyone has that Mm -hmm. kind of power, but if you're in a leadership or a Mm -hmm. management position to say, Hey, I'm taking the afternoon off because I'm taking my parents to look at a retirement facility. Hey, I won't be here tomorrow because my kid has some medical appointments and I'm taking off to be put it in your out of office. I'm on caregiving leave for four hours. It will normalize how important it is for men to care give and give permission to people who are under you who don't have as much Mm -hmm. power to do the same. And I thought that was a wonderful idea, which is why I chose to also borrow it and weave it into my book. I think that one's huge. And all to say, at the end of your book, one of the things you point out is we don't have to wait for policies to save us. And I, one, I couldn't believe it. I really lost my breath. Because one thing I've said for a very long time is no one is coming to save us. Yeah. So not only we don't need to wait, but I would say that we can't wait. And for all of our listeners, step one is getting this book, (laughs) learning about the problem, if you don't already know, but giving yourself the tools, the words, the first step to start being a part of the solution. Hey, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad that you are here to join us on rerouting. Thank you for having me today and for dedicating so much time because this is a sticky mm-hmm. topic and there's so many layers and nuances and it's mm-hmm. complicated and it's hard to get it out in 10 or 15 minutes. So I appreciate the fact that you devoted so much time to really hash out some of these topics. And I had a great time. It's been a pleasure, Kate. Thank you. Hey guys, we hope you're enjoying the show. If you haven't already, head over to reroutingpod.com and sign up for the newsletter. Subscribers receive exclusive updates from Deep and I and are the first to know when there's a new episode out. That's reroutingpod.com. Enter your email and we'll make sure you don't miss a thing.
I'm walking down just alone in the streets I have that feeling that things go when down for me I have to sit down, breathe now, free my mind I took a million, million steps, but still so blind But now I see these bright lights, glorious sunrise I just close my eyes Charge myself with love, flying Just change the game that we play So we just rerouting, 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 okay We know that we want, so we sailing away We keep it on, keep on rolling away It's time for more, we just change the game that we play So we just rerouting, 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 okay We know that we want, so we sailing away Time will come, days are just going by I'm still on the run I took the rough way, they say, oh, you're blind But they don't see what I'm seeing, it's on my mind And now I see these bright lights, glorious sunrise I just close my eyes Charge myself with love, flying doves above I It's time for more when we just change the game that we play So we just rerouting, 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 okay We know that we want, so we sailing away We keep it on, keep on rolling away It's time for more when we just change the game that we play So we just rerouting, 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 okay we know that we want, so we say in no way. Welcome back to another week of reroute.